The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome back. Um, so, I've looked at Buddhist philosophy of emptiness through early Buddhism and as it developed. And I now want to look at ideas of emptiness um, in the contemporary world with a sort of very brief gallop through um, a couple of other places because Buddhism is not entirely alone though it is, I think, the most important source of a philosophy of emptiness. Um, So I want to look at the trail of emptiness from Taoism and Buddhism, just mentioning the Greeks, and then particularly look look at emptiness in the contemporary world. And the one other place where there is an extraordinary degree of concern and understanding of emptiness and again this non-dual understanding um, is in Taoism I'm not going to say a huge lot about this but basically I think that considerations of emptiness in Taoism tend to be more poetic and more sort of foundational, if you like, as in a foundation, than those of Buddhism. And I don't think they're as explicitly worked out over the centuries into a philosophy or many different branches of philosophy as they have been in Buddhism. But quite obviously, there is this non-dual awareness. You know, that, that symbol of the Tao and the black dot in the white and the swirl. It is this logic of complementarity. So um, I'm just going to read you a couple of little bits about um, Taoism, like difficult and easy complement each other, long and short contrast each other, high and low rest upon each other, voice and sound harmonize each other, front and back follow one another. And the ultimate source is both empty and indefinable, the nameless that is the source of all. For though all creatures under heaven are the products of being, being itself is the product of non-being. There is a French sinologist, called Francois Julien, who I think writes absolutely wonderfully um, about how Chinese thought does not rest upon this logic of presence, absence, the excluded middle, like the logic of Western philosophy. But he describes it as resting on a logic of the breath, the in-breath, gives way to the out-breath. The one is implicate in the other. It is not 
a logic of either or. I think this is wonderful. He, he sort of shows how you see this all through the philosophy and also um, through the art in, 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 in China. Um, and I think you can see this, those wonderful sort of scroll paintings where the space is as important as the marks on it. Um, even if you think of a little haiku when it went down to Japan and you have this wonderful image surrounded by the empty page. Um, and of course, uh, Chinese Taoist beliefs very much influenced um, Far Eastern Buddhism. Uh, another lovely quote, I think, is, if you want to become full, let yourself be empty. To become full, be hollow. And I like that. And, that, and then that hollow is, I think I said earlier, the implications of hollowness in the very Sanskrit term, shunyata, though this, of course, came from, um, from the Chinese. It's my book. Sorry. <laughs> oh, what was I going to give you a definition for? I can't remember the word. Contingent. Um, can we go back to that? Will you hang on to that? And I will look, because I'm going to have to look for it. And, and you don't want me flipping through this, and I can't remember. I sort of vaguely remember where it is. But, you know, um, you write a book, and then you forget what you said in it. Um, but I will, I will, I have a pretty good idea, so please remind me. Um, what I found in writing this book was that there are ideas of emptiness in the Greeks, which I really didn't know. Um, and I found that through researching and through writing books. And this was, this was enormously um, exciting to me. And you find... Wonderful things. From, from Heraclitus on, everything flows, of course. Um, and then in the skeptics, the Stoics, Epicureans, um, best of all, in the Pyrrhonian skeptics, you find stuff that could have been written by Nagarjuna, which is extraordinary. Um, this, is, this is written... The, the, again, there's another French ph philosopher called Marcel Conch, who's compared Heraclitus um, to the Tao, which is fascinating. But he also, um, talking of the Greek skeptic Pyrrho, this French commentator, um, Conch, says, the nothing, rien, at which Pyrrho arrives is a completely other nothing than the nothingness, which would simply be the opposite of being. For each thing, one can no more say, it is, than it is not. And no more, it is not, than it is. For the Pyrrhonist, nothing is neither pure nothingness nor non-being. One can call it Appearance. Now, I mean that so echoes bits I've read you from from this, going right back to the sutras, and it is, I think, the probably was a direct influence 
um, because of the empire of Alexander the, Alexander the Great. Alexandra the Great, it's a Freudian slip. Um, there, there probably was, you know, um, a meeting in Taxila. Uh, it is thought somebody, it may have been Stephen Batchelor, suggested that the Buddha might even have studied at Taxila, and if he did not, which is now in Pakistan, um, some of his um, friends did. But this, this goes on. There, there's, um, I think the influence was probably from Buddhism mostly to the Greek philosophy, though a couple of people have suggested that it might even, some of it later on might have gone back the other way, that some of the argumentation of the Madhyamika might have been influenced by by the Greeks, but I, I really don't know about that. Um, but there is, certainly is all sorts of things that you find that um, in the Greeks that really sound Buddhist and, and were without doubt influenced, influenced by it. Um, but this tradition really became lost with the rise of Christianity. Christianity had, you know, posited the one God, certainty, and took up those philosophies of substance and essence, those Greek philosophies that spoke of substance and essence. And really the great names, you get a Plato and Aristotle, and you get very, very much less um, once Christianity becomes the ruling belief of the other Hellenistic and the pre-Socratic philosophers and really you get really no traces um, of emptiness through in the West um, except literal echoes in the writings of mystics this is a sort of magical mystery tour through very quickly through all sorts of things um, and in the mystics you do get stuff that I think, expresses emptiness. It's slightly different because there's usually a Godhead behind the idea of emptiness. But it is a God that often was at deeply at odds with, the, with the, the God as taught. And, and these mystics were very often considered heretics. Um, there is, for example, there is um, a philosopher called John Scotus Erigena in the ninth century, and this is a quote from him. But when I hear or say that the divine good created all from nothing, I do not understand what is signified by the name nothing, whether the privation of all essence or substance or accident or the excellence of the divine beyond essence. So I think this, you know, the, these really do show that an existential understanding of emptiness, because I'm sure this was unlike the Greeks. I don't think there was any direct influence here. Um, and there's uh, some wonderful things from St. John of the Cross, um, which some of you may recognize because it's echoed by T.S. Eliot in his Four Quartets in East Coker. 
but this is from, um, from St. John of the Cross. To achieve pleasure in everything, you must take pleasure in nothing. In order to know everything, you must seek to know nothing. To reach what you do not know, you must go through the way of unknowing. In order to reach what you are not, you must go through the way of unbeing. I think these are, you know, absolutely perfect resonances um, of emptiness. So, um, another another um, place where you do find some idea, I think, of emptiness. I'm probably slightly scraping the barrel because for centuries you really didn't in the West. Um, is in some of the ideas of the sublime in romantic writers. Um, and I'm tr- trying to think of the, the great Keats thing, which I can't remember. Um, it's not unknowing. It will come back to me, or maybe I can find it here. But um, Sorry. Um, I shouldn't have mentioned it because now I can't remember what it was and where I put it in the book because it, it had to be moved. I was told to move it. For some reason, it wasn't. It was a chapter on its own, and it got put somewhere else. So I will now have to uh, to look for it. Um, there we go. Yes. Um, no, I didn't. No, I don't think I have put it. Hmm. But there's a wonderful thing about Keats. It's the um, it's about not quite the the via negativa or the negative way, but it's about how you have to be in a state of nothing so you can allow things to mark you. He was talking about poets. It will come back to me, but anyway, not very important. But it's not really until I would say the beginning of modern times and of course now even more in the postmodern, that the West seemed to lose its certainty and lose its traditional foundations. Nietzsche talked of the death of God. Evolution challenged creationism. And then we get into the world of science which is where we have um, uncertainty, dark matter, quanta, indeterminacy, and in psychology there was the discovery of the unconscious. And with all of this, echoes of emptiness return to Western culture, both as lack, I think, and as potential. The threats came, I mean, by science, relativity, indeterminacy, quantum mechanics, contingency, dark matter, still 
half the known, I mean, the known universe is, 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 is all, I mean, rather more, I think it's about 90% is full of what is called dark matter, and nobody quite knows what that is. Um, certainties were threatened by psychology inwardly, the divisions of the self, and particularly the unconscious. And this has, of course, now been further reinforced by neuroscience. Evolution speaks of randomness, of contingency, not, I will go back to it, not creation. In philosophy, suddenly philosophers were talking about existence before essence. Heidegger spoke of the end of metaphysics. Derrida spoke of the end of ontotheology. Um, we had deconstruction. And so with all these movements, we, there was both a breaking down of the certainties. There was a lot of emptiness as lack, a kind of nihilistic emptiness. And then there were those who were trying to find a, ground, a groundless ground, some way of embracing contingency. Um, and I'm going to read just a couple of little quotes from this. Um, the first is from Heidegger. Kind of existentialism meets phenomenology. Phenomenology took us back to actual experience how the world does not exist or we can never know it outside our experience of it, which inevitably colors it. But Heidegger was speaking of a jug, and he says, the jug consists not in the piece of formed earth, but in its emptiness. The potter does not shape the clay but rather the emptiness. And somewhere else he says, emptiness is the ungraspable. Um, and he also shows, describes the other face of emptiness, the dependent origination. Here's quite a long quote. The drink abides in the whole gathering involved in the event of drinking this gathering is the belonging together in the event of drinking of what is offered and received as drinkable. The whole gathering of the drink consists of the drink offered and the drink received. What is offered as drinkable is, amongst other things, wine. The one who drinks it is the human. The whole gathering of the drink as what is offered abides in the wine which abides in the grapevine, which abides in the earth and the gifts of the sky. It's like a Thich Nhat Hanh's piece of paper. And, and, and Heidegger wrote a lot about the event. And it's this wonderful way of, of de-thingifying things, of exposing the processual nature of things. Um, and then more recently than Derrida comes a French philosopher from Heidegger comes a French philosopher um, Derrida and I'm going to read you another um, 
a quote from him. But before I do that, I just want to say, it turns out that Heidegger did have quite a close knowledge of Buddhist and Taoist thought. Apparently, he was once going to translate the Tao Te Ching. Um, he never wrote about, acknowledged this, because apparently he didn't like to, because he didn't, hadn't read them in the original languages. Um, but there are some wonderful dialogues that have been quite recently published and translated from the German, um, which are dialogues of, from Heidegger, and he does it between a philosopher and an Easterner. And I, I forget, I've got it in here, but the titles of the books. But in them, the Eastern, this point of view, this understanding of emptiness is shown, and, and they, they have absolutely terrific... Um, dialogues which, which are fascinating to see the traces of emptiness in them. Um, but then came Derrida, who is probably the chief name with a sort of school known of, as, as, um, as deconstructionism, which has been slightly towards the nihilistic in many of its, its, its exponents. Um, there is a Buddhist writer who once talked about deconstructionism as being interdependence without the, the concept of emptiness, which I thought was very interesting. But uh, Derrida has a term he calls différence, and he spells it differently from difference, even in French. Um, I'm not going to define it because I don't need to, but I just want you to read this, and I just want you to listen for echoes of emptiness. Différence is not. It is not a present being, however excellent unique, principle, or transcendent. It governs nothing, reigns over nothing, and nowhere exercises any authority. Not only is there no kingdom of difference, but difference instigates the subversion of every kingdom, which makes it obviously threatening and infallibly dreaded by everything within us that desires a kingdom the past or future presence of a kingdom. I think that's really interesting because I think he addresses that psychological fear of emptiness as well as describing this term which might well be emptiness or, or, or shunyata. Um, that's really all I'm going to say about philosophy. We've had an awful lot of philosophy, I think. Um, but I also want to go into the arts. Now, if you go into the field of contemporary arts with your emptiness spectacles on, you will have such a great time. I can tell you where to go at MoMA in San Francisco, but um, I had an amazing trip for, for MoMA once, but I'll get there in a minute. Um, but artists, I think, are those who pay attention closely who often pick up the zeitgeist, the feeling in the air before the rest of us. And so contemporary, from modern onwards, artists, you can see the breakdown of our old foundations and certainties. You know, in the visual arts, you can see from early the Cubist perspective, it broke down the sort of godlike perspective of the artist and the frame and gave us multiple perspectives. Then we lost the subject altogether with abstraction, and the painting was appearance. 
its surface. And then we got to conceptualism, the idea. It got more and more intangible, more and more ineffable. Um, in writing, you can see the loss of the sort of godlike narrator quite often. Stream of consciousness, writing. Interestingly, this is just an aside, I think narrative is the thing that's most resistant to emptiness, but that's just a, a throw-in. I think you find it more in poetry. Um, who can I point to? Oh, God, look at the work of um, Samuel Beckett. You know, that is words, that is words almost becoming ineffable almost to the point of music. In music itself, the central structures, the sonata form, the tonality, all the stuff that had been in music, in Western music for years, kind of was let go of. Um... And I think in all these disciplines, with your emptiness spectacles on, you can see echoes of emptiness. I'm going to think of your own example. Um, I think artists explore the lack of form and come up with an emptiness that is far from empty. Um, there was an, a couple of summers ago, there was an, a, a, an, an exhibition at one of the major public galleries in London um, a summer exhibition, and it was called Invisible, Art of the Unseen. And they actually, I think the advertisement for it said something like, you know, the best art show you'll never see. Or, um, but in the, in, the, in the essay that the curator put in the catalogue or on, on notes up, on, um, he said... This show is a, it was a phrase that has stuck with me and I was absolutely delighted by it. It's called, it's a challenge to the complacency of the scene. This show, Art Invisible, is a challenge to the complacency of the scene. And it made me think emptiness is a challenge to the complacency of the seen, the heard, the formed, and, I think, to our accepted ideas. I think it's a wonderful term because we do the complacency. It's what we just take on without questioning. And I'm going to start off by giving you a couple of examples. One, of course, is... is the, the the main sort of example is, um, I don't know if any of you know of a piece of music by John Cage called Four Minutes 33, um, at which, you know, the first performance, someone came along and sat at a piano and opened the piano and sat there and sat, which is possibly what I should have done here today <laughs> in doing a workshop on emptiness, but I think you'd have probably thrown things at me. Um, Anyway, for four minutes, 33 seconds, with three movements, I think, in, in, in between. Nothing. But of course it wasn't nothing, was it? Because every single time that piece experience is repeated, it's going to be different. A car horn, 
your own breathing. You know, apparently it came from, Cage went into an anechoic chamber at Harvard. And in the silence, he suddenly realized he heard two things. And one was his, was I think his heart beating, and the other was his blood throwing. So he was fascinated by this fact that there is never silence. And, you know, it might have been the first conceptual piece of music. It was also um, influenced by um, a visual, my visual example, which are the white paintings of Robert Rauschenberg. And Cage wonderfully described these white paintings as airports for particles and shadows. Because he found every time he would, if you walk past one, you will, as you move, you will see shadows, you will see particles, you will see those lovely dust particles that sometimes come from the sunlight. The light as the day as the day goes on will be different on these white paintings. So wonderful. I mean, you know, it, it's it's hard. I, I'm going to ask you for some examples, but I will say I had a when I was writing this book, I went to MoMA one day with some friends. And Now, what did we have? Um, There was a sound sculpture on that very top ramp, you know, where you you go across and you can see right down below you, for those of you who have been there. It's a bit scary if you have vertigo. Um, There was a sound sculpture, and it was kind of wired up, so you heard the sounds coming from various bits of of the building and the sounds that had come from your tread on the thing. So it was completely invisible, this sound sculpture. There was an exhibition about wine, part of which had a little alcove that had been painted with a paint that had a very faint scent of wine on someone's breath. And you put your head in this completely invisible completely, seemingly empty. Um, And then up there was actually, it looked like a painting, it was a huge map of uh, the United States. And it had on it little lights, some of which lit up. And it was all the places that the little cities and little villages that were called nowhere, nothingville, zilch, Zip, zero. And there was a little piece about it where the artist said, you know, this was to give people a... a, Did he call it a map of nothing? I can't remember. But it was to challenge the complacency of the expected. So I really felt... I mean, I had been writing this book at that time, so I had my little emptiness spectacles on. But it was a very strange and wonderful trip. And, and one more thing, just going back to Cage's 4 minutes 33, two things. One, someone was threatened with a lawsuit for trying to do it without permission. 
So I was taking a, a, um, giving a presentation once, and I had people meditate for you know three minutes twenty two, so or something. So I didn't get into into problems asking them to be aware of the silence. Um, and the other is is a very funny thing. I think in England, you know, it's probably the same here. People get very excited about what is going to be the mute, the pop the number at the top of the charts for Christmas, you know, the Christmas number. And for a couple of years, the um, uh, the top of the show, is it America's Got Talent or the, the British equivalent, they've kind of hijacked, Simon Cowell kind of hijacked the, so that whatever was the leading thing then got the top um, Spot. So one, the year, but one year, a whole lot of musicians got together to try and stop this, and I think they succeeded. And the next year, they decided they'd do it again. So what did they choose as their, you know, competing number? Four minutes thirty-three, <laughs> and they got an incredible group of um, really well-known pop stars and, and music stars together in silence. I don't think it worked, unfortunately. But now I've said enough, and I'm going to ask, has anyone like to share some ideas of emptiness in the arts? Or... Um, I'm not sure if this is relevant, actually. Um, maybe some of you are mathematicians or know yesterday... Um, was, yeah, yesterday was a Pi Day. Yes. <laughs> so I was just thinking... Of, I, my understanding is that that's a, sort of a, um, a representative of infinity, a number that never ends or something like that. I think you're right. I've, I'm, I'm really not... I'm a bit mathematically illiterate, but yes, it is. It's it's the it is infinity because it's trying to divide something that is cannot be divided. So you get point three 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 three, don't you? At the end, that's a lovely example. I interestingly, um, the the Indian. That's right. It's three, it's three one four, blah, 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 and then you go on into the indivisibility. That's a perfect. That's right. That they were apparently having Pi Day at the Exploratorium. Well, you mentioned dark matter, and the measurements that give rise to that assumption, all or to that concept, all assume that the speed of light is a constant. But if it's conditioned, then it's not a constant. Ooh. <clears throat> That's fascinating. Okay, I'll mention this book on physics I just read, Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn by um, Amanda Gefter. Um, about a third of the book is incomprehensible to me as and this is a physics book written by a non-physics person who has no math, but she understands it pretty well. Um, and she keeps reading and reading and reading on this subject and interviewing all the top physicists that she can 
and, and they, they meet with her. And um, so where she's going with this is that um, uh, Einstein just didn't go far enough. He came up with this theory of relativity and, and so, so uh, you know, weight and speed and time, places, all depends on uh, your frame of reference. Mm-hmm. You know, each, and each individual observer has uh, a different frame of reference. They're standing in different places. Um, and then quantum mechanics comes along and, and everything's uncertain. Einstein couldn't swallow that. He, d- he didn't take his own sense of theory of relativity far enough down into the particle realm. He thought there was a constancy mm-hmm. in essence, a, a real reality. So he couldn't handle quantum mechanics, but he's always been proven wrong in that respect. So she says he didn't go far enough. Um, and one by one, she, she comes, she says, everything turns out to be illusional or uncertain or you can't you cannot pin it down even particles matter time space space time um, if if it's invariant it's real but nothing's invariant because um, everything is different depending on your frame of reference mm-hmm. so the last thing on her list was the speed of light and that seems to be the same from the viewpoint of every observer, no matter what. But then she found one frame of reference where it is different, and that's from the point of view of light itself. So if you are light, yes, it takes you um, um, millions of light years, years from our point of view, from our frame of reference, to get from one star to another. But to you, the light, it doesn't take any time at all. It's instantaneous. So light crosses the universe instantaneously from its own point of view. So maybe that's a different frame of reference. So maybe light is real or not. Anyway. That's nice. Uh, I don't know if that was of interest to anyone. But uh, yeah. the book seems to relate. And, and the subject seems to have come up a few times mm-hmm. today. Mm. About um, modern art. I just have not heard any stories of anyone going to look at this minimalist art and loving it and then leaving to become inspired to um, to want less <laughs> or to become more minimalist or stop buying so much. Uh, but maybe I've missed the stories. I, but I, I tend to think you do need the rest of Buddhism. You can't just... Um, I don't know. Take this hard I, I think my answer to that is so many of the modern artists, and I think it started with the minimalists, are asking you to have an experience. I mean, have you been to any of the art of James Turrell, who plays with light? Olafur Eliasson. There was an extraordinary exhibition of his, again at, at San Francisco MoMA. And interestingly, it was called Take Your Time. 
the whole exhibition. And there were all sorts of things that you could have an experience with. One of them, just to tell you, you went into a room which had a kind of circular, like an open drum, double-walled, white drum that, you know, all of us could have fitted inside. And in between the double walls of this drum were lights of different colors. And they changed. So you were bathed in these different colored lights. And if you took your time, you discovered that to be bathed in pink is a very different experience to being bathed in blue, which turns into green. Um, The nearest thing I've, it was interesting because the nearest thing I've experienced to it was um, there is a, at at the Buddhist Naropa University, they do in the contemplative psychology program, they do something that um, Trungpa Rinpoche set up um, called the Maitri program. And it's based on the five Buddha families of Vajrayana. And you go into rooms which have the different colors of the families and you take a different position. And the light source comes sometimes from the ceilings, sometimes from above. Um, And sometimes from one side. And you stay there for about an hour. And you kind of meditate, and you have very different experiences. So uh, whether Elias knew about that, I don't know, but it was completely fascinating. And it was, these artists are inviting you to have an experience, and that experience does have a lot to do with attention. I mean, I found it fascinating because when I went in there and I sat on the floor and because it was great, it was so enveloping. And people came in and they were, they were uneasy, they didn't know what they would do. And, you know, a couple of people came in and saw me sitting there and said, what do you do? So I said, just, just hang out for a little while. See how you feel in the different colors. And they'd hang out for about 30 seconds, and you could see them being really uneasy, and then they'd go. Um, it was extraordinary. Anyway, sorry, that was a diversion, but, and someone else wants to talk. So. Pi, um, <clears throat> and that made me think. Pi is an irrational number, and that means that three point one four. There is never a repeating pattern. For example, if you have three point one four one four one four, that would be a rational number, but there is no pattern in the number pi, and there are some computer programs that would get you billions of places beyond the decimal, and there were no detectable pattern. So I went to a very interesting uh, conference last fall. It was called Science and Non-Duality. And there I heard, for the first time for me, that there might not be such a phenomenon as randomness if everything is interconnected then 
there is nothing left to chance in a way. That's what randomness is. Mm. So just just something I, that made me think. So I thought I'll throw it out. That is sort of the end of or oh, the absence of necessity and the embrace of contingency, isn't it? It comes full circle. Mm, that's that's really really fascinating. That thing about non-duality, I I do think, you know, why is all these echoes of emptiness coming now? Because I think we've lost certainties. Why is the philosophy of emptiness so helpful to us? Because the West does not have this logic of complementarity, of being able to walk a path between is and is not. And, and what science is discovering, what neuropsychology is discovering, what artists are discovering, are requiring that path. And I think without such a logic, the loss of certainty leads to nihilism. Nothing exists. Emptiness but emptiness is not non-existence. It, it's really fascinating. If you look at lots of models, you will see that often older models were linear models. They're hierarchical models. They're tree models. And so many of the models now are network models. If you think of the science of complexity, if you um, think of ecology... All these um, systems theory, they are all coming out of, are based upon a sort of network model and they work both bottom up and top down in a way that the old models didn't. And I think ideas of emptiness and of non duality help us to deal with this sort of the stuff that we need. Oh, look, I've got my definition of contingency here. I'd actually put it in my notes. I just hadn't got them. Um, The definition of contingency, depending on something else, happening by chance. I'm not saying those two are the same, but those are um, the definitions I got out of the dictionary. I think what this does, understanding the emptiness of necessity and the embrace of contingency, it turns us back to this practice of attention, which is also what Buddhism endorses. Careful attention of what is um, reality without necessity, but not reality without existence. And I think it's fascinating that so many of um, the artists that I've mentioned are asking us to have experiences. I mean, to some extent, art has always done that. Artists have always asked us to see the world anew, but particularly in contemporary times, and particularly um, people now, I mean there's so many people I can think of, Anish Kapoor those huge mirrors, all sorts of things are are presenting you 
with an experience. Um, there's one of super minimal artists, Barnett Newman, wrote an amazing piece quite a long time ago now saying, the sublime is now bringing you back now. So to, to add an, another artist in there um, is Agnes Martin. Do you know her Absolutely. work? Absolutely, yes. No, and she's a Canadian who, um, who did a lot of work in America in the first half of the 20th century. And her writings also say that. And she works, I thought of her be, through about the connection with interdependence because uh, her grid paintings, which are very subtle, they're, they're lines, it's linear grids, but they're very subtle. So you, you really kind of call to see what this, and also there's this kind of interconnection. They just kind of end. Thank you. No, she, she's a perfect example. Absolutely. Um, anyone else got anything they'd like to bring to the table? <laughs> any names, any experiences? I... Um, I know of a contemporary choreographer who does a lot of work, who works both in ballet and contemporary dance, um, who's choreographed work for San Francisco Ballet, amongst others, but who works with neuroscientists, has worked with neuroscientists on the way dance gets created and he works with his dancers in his small contemporary company to get them to work from a place of unknowing. I mean, it's emptiness in dance to try and subvert the complacent or the habitual movement I mean, his work is extraordinary. There's just been a, an exhibition of it in, in London um, at the Wellcome Institute, which is actually a, well, a, a medical institute that explores all sorts of things with uh, art and, and, and the world of, of medicine and neurology. And, um, and his latest thing, he actually he works with a lot of computer people, highly, highly, highly techy stuff. And... Um, they had almost a robot that will almost dance with dancers. So they had the dancers working in front of a 3D screen with this robotic creature whose name I can't remember what they called it because so then relationship would come with it. So they were responding to something. I mean, it, it's, it's way out stuff, but absolutely fascinating and full of indefinability and emptiness. Um, well, that made me think. Your reference to a choreographer yes. made me think about Balanchine, who worked uh, a few decades back, yes. but he also uh, lightened up the form. He removed costumes, he removed plot, he removed decor, he made his stage empty. The usual attire of the dancers was leotard. Yes. And I think all that is just to put the essence of ballet center stage. And the essence of ballet to him was the body movement yes. to music. 
That's really interesting. I mean, that's sort of the beginning of contemporary dance, isn't it? I probably shouldn't say this because it's just confusing things, but it suddenly occurred to me there's a paradoxical thing there. You're taking away the clutter and you're exposing both emptiness and essence, but we're meant to be getting rid of essence. But we're also showing that essence is not solid, is not, comes from a coming together of many things, as you said, of the body and music. Um, he's called Wayne McGregor. Wayne McGregor. He he has he has a ballet on this year. Well, I think it premiered last year in San Francisco called Borderlands, which is on the work of an artist, Joseph Alpers, the Bauhaus School. Um, he's also leading choreographer at the uh, Royal Ballet in London. I just wanted to add that. Balanchine's dances are not just movement to music, they're the dancers in relationship to each other. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a nice point. Yeah. I just wanted to um, see if this fits at all, but I don't know who saw the movie Her. <gasps> no, and, I'm waiting to see okay, it. Okay, so I won't give it away. No, no, <laughs> no please, don't, don't worry. But, I, I shall see it anyway. It's just an amazing look at relationships through a virtual relationship through the computer. So there isn't any woman that he's in relationship with. It's this virtual, and it's brilliant and really makes you think uh, about how you can construct out of full cloth your own perception of this other uh, who happens not to be a person in this uh, so it's interesting. I don't know yes. if it fits your emptiness thing. but oh, that's really yeah. fascinating. Pardon me? Yeah, we do. But it, it was just made it really uh, obvious. I loved it. Oh, thank you for that. I want to see it even more now. This is an example from high art but from popular culture, and I, I think it may fit. Uh, Norwegian television every year really plans a long time in advance what they're going to put on during the 24 hours of Christmas. And, you know, bells, choirs, plays, whatever. And I think two years ago, they just gave up. And they just showed for 24 hours one fire burning. Uh, you know, just a fireplace with a fire. A real fire. I mean, it, it, was, it changed. It wasn't over and over. It was just a fireplace for 24 hours. And people loved it. Oh, that's lovely. That's a fantastic story. How brave. How, whoever the director general or whatever the position is, I, I hope somebody gave him a medal or her a medal. Or, um, that's really lovely. Um, does anyone want to bring anything else? Because if not, this might be a good time to stop for a little tea break and a break. Um, and then we'll come back and we'll do the, la- the last sitting. We might have a tiny little one at the end. Um, we'll have a last sitting and then we'll have um, a little bit of discussion. So think of all the questions you want to ask or stuff you would like to say. Thank you. <laughs>